Hello and welcome to Theology on Tape, portable Catholic theology for catechists or Catholics who want to dig deeper. My name is Shane. With me as always is Elizabeth. How did I do? You did great. Is that it? Yeah. All right. Hi, everybody. Um, this episode is a sort of miscellaneous question and answer episode. Um, more well, like topic and answer <laughs> episode. No, no, no. But we've been talking about this for a long time. So here it is. But first, <laughs> let's start with a prayer. And to inspire us, we have the Come Holy Spirit prayer. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and unkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant us in the same spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Do you want to talk about prayer first, generally? Yeah, so we were considering doing an entire episode on prayer. um, But in light of that, there are just a few things briefly that I want to say about prayer. First of all, what prayer is not from a biblical perspective. Prayer is not informing God of what we need. And that should be obvious, but I think maybe sometimes we forget that, that we're not letting God know what we need. God knows it, and Jesus emphasizes that in, the, in, the, in Matthew's gospel. And he says, you know, um, your father knows what you need even before you ask. Mm. So we're not praying so that God knows what we need. We're also not praying in order to convince God to give us what we need, as if we are somehow better than God and God needs convincing. No, God always wants to, again, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, God always wants to give good gifts to his children. So what is prayer really about? Again, the paradigm shift that I want all of us to be able to make is that prayer is not changing God. God does not ever change. (laughs) That's an important theological point. God does not change, certainly not by prayer. Prayer does not change God. Prayer changes us. Now, an important clarification, having said that, is that that does not mean that prayer is merely psychological. So like, oh, well, prayer makes us feel better. It makes us recontextualize things. I think in many cases it, it does do that. But prayer on a spiritual level actually opens us up to blessings that we may not otherwise be open to because we did not ask. So James, for instance, says in his letter, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. Mm -hmm. Now, again, that doesn't mean because God is withholding something good. It means that only in asking are we properly disposed to receive. But then he adds, And when you ask, you ask wrongly because you ask to spend it on your passions, right? To spend it selfishly. So when we ask, it's not just like, oh, God is not a magic genie of like, well, whatever you ask for, you'll get it. No, prayer is not about us getting what we want from God, but quite the opposite. Prayer is us sort of realigning with what God is doing. So the ultimate prayer, the ultimate prayer that we see from Jesus, he teaches us in the Our Father. He teaches us to pray, Thy will be done. 
Mm-hmm. All of our prayers have to be with that attitude in mind. God, your will be done. We see that prayer again in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is facing his ultimate test. He says, not my will, but yours be done. And of course, in that other sort of fateful moment uh, when Mary is approached by the angel Gabriel and she says, let it be done unto me according to your will. Mm -hmm. That's the ultimate spiritual disposition is that we're not getting from God what we want. We're not convincing God of something. But in prayer, we are aligning ourselves to God's will. So here's the analogy that I use. God is like this great, like kind of radio broadcast, right? Mm -hmm. God is unchanging. He's he's nothing but love broadcasting Mm -hmm. into the universe. He's nothing but goodness, nothing but blessing. Why do we not receive it? It's not because God is not offering it, but because we are like that little receiver antenna we're not tuned into the right station. So prayer is us adjusting our antennas, turning our dials, making it so that we are in line with what God is doing so that we can receive what he is already offering. You see how that's important, right? It's not, God is an unchanging broadcast. Yeah. Prayer is us retuning our dials, getting in harmony with God. So that we can actually um, hear the message, communicate. So that we can hear what he wants to say in case what we want is not what God wants. We can hear that message. And also so that we can receive the blessing. Because again, I want to emphasize that it's not just psychological. God can really heal people. God can really perform miracles. But again, we have to be on his level. We have to be in tune with him mm-hmm. in order to receive those blessings. Because again, we cannot ask selfishly. Everything that we do has to be according to his will. And through prayer, we are conditioned. We become conformed to his will. We have much more to say about prayer. We're going to have a whole series on that. But that's hopefully a good little introduction to what prayer is. Okay. So here's a question that we have. For you, for us, (laughs) do the souls in hell still have intrinsic dignity, having been originally created beings of God and thereby created with intrinsic dignity, or by virtue of being separated from God in hell, they no longer retain that dignity? Yeah, so those who are in hell are, of course, eternally separated from God. But far from this meaning that God has... Uh, abandoned them or that they are no longer again as the question says like fully equal in human dignity it's quite the contrary right hell is actually an affirmation of human dignity because it's an affirmation of real human will of of human choice because the reason why hell is eternal because some Christians for instance believe Some Protestant Christians believe that hell is temporary. That at a certain point after someone has suffered sufficient punishment, they simply cease to exist. And there's something kind of pleasant about that. We don't like the idea of a hell that goes on forever and ever and ever. Mm -hmm. But actually the reason why the church affirms, well, the reason why it affirms it is because scripture affirms it. But 
hell is eternal because human beings are created in the image of God. It's precisely because of the intrinsic dignity of humanity. Because we are made in the image of God, we cannot be destroyed. So when a human being is turned away from God, they cannot experience the happiness that comes with God's, with the light of God's presence. But at the same time, their life cannot be extinguished because even in hell, they still are an image of God. Even in hell, there is still something of God in them. Because again, as I think we had said before when we talked about the existence of God, God is existence itself. Mm -hmm. So anything that exists, even the souls in hell, exist because God is in some way present to them. And this is, I think, maybe a helpful way of understanding what hell is exactly. Heaven and hell are, in some ways... Now, for full disclosure, this is me kind of like, this is a little bit of my own opinion, um, but I think this checks out. This is C.S. Lewis. This is some of his reflection that hell and heaven are in some ways the same experience. They're both an experience of God, but with a different subjective point of view, right? Those who experience God's presence, who are open and receptive to it, experience it as great joy whereas those who are turned away those who are not receptive to it experience it as agonizing Mm -hmm. but in both cases it is actually the intrinsic dignity of the human person the immortal soul of a human person that god is acknowledging this image of god but it's their individual will that determines how that is experienced whether as joy or as suffering Mm, okay what about the in-between place? Yes. Because you can change from being in that state to rising up to heaven, should we say? Yeah. So in our episode on heaven and hell, we didn't have time to touch on purgatory, which, is, which was unfortunate. But it's worth clarifying that purgatory is an exceptional situation that those who enter purgatory are saved. No one, no one ever leaves hell. Hell is a state of permanent, irrevocable condemnation. But those who die in a state of imperfect charity, we could say, right? Where charity exists in the soul, so they are united to God, but they are also not yet prepared for the vision of God. So they, they have that link but they're not yet open, and so they have to go through a process of purification before they are ready to see God. And so they enter into heaven, they enter into the vision of God at a later time. But all those in purgatory, nobody in purgatory will will ever end up in hell. Mm -hmm. Everyone in purgatory goes to heaven. No one in hell ever gets into purgatory, right? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so purgatory, if you make it to purgatory, that's good news. <laughs> it means you made it, but you have still more work to do. You have still more cleansing to be done. And we see an echo of this in scripture, all throughout scripture. Uh, but one passage that always comes to mind is in the Psalms. 
Psalm 24, the Bible says, Who can climb the mountain of the Lord? The man with clean hands and a pure heart who desires not worthless things. So who can climb the mountain of the Lord? Right? Who can stand in God's presence? Well, the man with clean hands and a pure heart who desires not worthless things. Well, we're not all there yet, right? Yeah. We don't all have clean hands and a pure heart. As Jesus says, those blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. Well, if you don't die pure in heart, then you're not going to go straight to heaven. But what God, about your past? Like if you are pure of heart in your hour of death and you've been absolved of your sins? Yeah, well, that's why, again, you can go back and listen to when we talked about the difference between eternal consequences, the eternal punishment of sin, which is what we receive forgiveness for in the sacrament of reconciliation. So if you go to confession, you will not go to hell, right? If you've, you absolution uh, frees you from the eternal punishment of sin, which is hell. But what it doesn't free you from is the temporal punishment. That's the, that's the effect on your character, because we all know that if you go to confession, yes, God forgives you. But if you go to confession, you're still, you still have the same habits that you had when you went in. Mm-hmm. It's not magic. That takes time. That takes effort. So if you die, so let's say you just went to confession, you walk out of the confessional, you die. It doesn't mean you go straight to heaven just because you just went to confession. Mm-hmm. Because your habits, your character still needs formation, still needs purification mm-hmm. so that you're ready for the vision of God. And that's what purgatory is. Uh, can you explain what a plenary indulgence is? Yeah, so there are two kinds of indulgences. We say there are partial and plenary indulgences. Plenary. Plenary. Yeah, I said plenary. Oh, <laughs> P-L-E-N-A-R-Y. Okay. Plenary. So an indulgence is basically an act of the three virtuous acts, the three acts, the three pious acts that Jesus commands of us. Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Now there are certain prayers and certain fastings and certain almsgivings that the church, by virtue of the authority of Jesus, has attached um, certain value to. So that if you pray and if you fast and if you give alms, those things are meritorious. They are good in God's eyes. And so to offset our sins, to heal the wounds that sin creates in us, we can perform these indulgences. So you can think of indulgences as like a kind of spiritual physical therapy, right? Healing a wound, repairing a muscle, a ligament, something like that. It's not a get out of jail free card. No, 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 because it's not as many people get confused. You don't, you can't get an indulgence for something that you're about to do, right? <laughs> so like I, if I know I'm going to kill somebody, I go to the priest and say, hey, can I get an indulgence so that when I kill this person, it doesn't count against me? No, no, no. Indulgences are healing for wounds that have already been created. So these are good things that we do that help heal our souls. A partial indulgence is exactly what it sounds like. It's part of the healing process. A plenary indulgence is plenary means full. 
So mm-hmm. a plenary indulgence would be a full healing. So if you obtain a plenary indulgence, you will be free from all punishment of sin. So you would go straight to heaven if you had a plenary indulgence. But here's the catch. One of the conditions for a plenary indulgence is to have no attachment to sin, mm-hmm. which means that your character, not only are you forgiven for all your sins, but you have no desire even to commit any small sin. And I'm not Venial there. or not, right? <laughs> right. So plenary indulgences are themselves, again, it's not some kind of magic trick or some, as you said, get out of jail free card. It's about changing our heart and our character because the goal in all of this, what God wants is for us to change. And this is what so many theologies miss, especially, uh, I'm sorry to say, uh, Protestant theologies of justification where the idea is, well, you're legally forgiven. God has erased your record. Well, you know, the good, obviously, we're glad for that. But I want so much more than that. I don't want God to just forgive me. I mean, I need forgiveness, but I need more than forgiveness. I need to actually be changed. I don't want to go to heaven being the person that I am. In fact, I can't go to heaven being the person that I am. I need more than just to be legally forgiven. I need to be transformed. And that requires God's grace, number one, but it also requires time and it requires effort. And so when we talk about purgatory, we're talking about indulgences, that's what we're talking about. It's the time and it's the effort that is required for us to become the kind of people that are truly fit for heaven. Mm-hmm. Do you think we're all called to be saints? Oh, no question, because everyone in heaven is a saint. So St. Thomas Aquinas is a saint, St. John the Baptist is a saint, St. Teresa of Calcutta is a saint. But all we mean by that is that they're in heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who knows? Maybe my grandma is a saint. I don't know, <laughs> right? Yeah. We can't say that for sure. Uh, So the canonized saints are simply people that we affirm as the church. We are confident that they are in heaven. But all of us who are saved will be saints. Saints just means holy ones. So are we all called to be holy? Yeah, of course. That's the command of scripture. Be holy because I, the Lord, am holy. So yes, be saints. That's what the Bible calls all of us to. Um. And about the saints, um, let's talk a little bit about the relics. Ah, yeah, okay. So relics are a strange thing um, that maybe some converts will have an issue with. Um, Let me pull up this scripture. The Bible, believe it or not, actually gives a very surprising little message about relics. Acts chapter 19, verse 11, it says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. So even something that a saint, now this is the Bible, right? For all the Protestants saying, relics, blah, blah, blah. This is in the Bible. Even something that a saint has touched, a handkerchief or an apron, that the people would use them and they would touch people who were sick or demon-possessed and they would be healed. So um, things that the saints owned or touched, these are like third-class relics, 
or second class, I forget exactly what the classification is. But then we also, how much more do we have like first class relics, which are actual like pieces of, you know, maybe bone or hair or something like that, some physical part of the saint's body. And again, we see another clue of that in uh, the Old Testament. Elisha, who is a great prophet, his bones are buried in a pit. And when some men, some dead bodies are thrown into the pit with Elijah's bones, when they touch Elijah's bones, the men come back to life. Hmm. So even bones in the Bible have the power to communicate God's energy, God's life. Uh, so relics are a thoroughly biblical phenomenon. Uh, and that's why the church throughout its history has maintained these things. We have the, we have the bones of the apostles and John the Baptist and all the great saints from the scriptures on throughout church history. We, we maintain these things because we know that in these people's lives, God has done extraordinary things. And God is pleased through these relics to continue to perform miracles. What about the um, the relic of, uh, what is it called, the, that Mary wore? Or that Juan Diego wore and it had the image of Mary? Oh, the, the, the tilma. Yeah, the tilma. There you go. From Our Lady of Guadalupe, Juan mm-hmm. Diego. Um, or just if you want to talk generally, if we want to discuss generally um, the... Marian apparitions? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so this is another more interesting kind of thing where Mary herself throughout church history, and this goes all the way back really to the first century, these Marian apparitions. Uh, the Blessed Mother has appeared to individuals in different times, in different places, and some of them with quite miraculous effect. Uh, I think the two most notable examples would be Our Lady of Guadalupe, Our Lady of Fatima. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of these are accompanied with remarkable miracles. In the case of Our Lady of Guadalupe, it's a tilma, which is made of these cactus fibers and this miraculous image of Our Lady imprinted on it. And again, this is one of the things that the Vatican subjects these things to tremendous scrutiny, uh, to understand how the image is formed, uh, and it it defies explanation, um, even in its preservation, in its color, in its uh, how it was formed. So Mary gives these things to us as a sign of her presence, a message to us. Um, And again, with Our Lady of Fatima, we don't have any relics from that. But there was a tremendous um, miracle of the sun that was witnessed by tens and tens of thousands of people. Uh, And yeah, these mark important stages. The sun? The miracle of the sun. Yeah. So um, wasn't that something that we talked about with... uh an atheist the there's an argument of atheists like really the sun actually changed it would have made the planets all misalign and yeah okay so richard dawkins in his most recent book um called outgrowing god he actually talks about our lady of fatima and he talks about the miracle of the sun so in fatima portugal in 1917 something like 70,000 people uh were there uh, for this miraculous uh, apparition and People claimed to see the sun, as they said, dancing in the sky. It was changing colors. It was spinning in circles and all kinds of things. And Richard Dawkins, obviously a notable atheist, his response to that is, 
Well, of course the sun was not moving around in the sky because it would have, first of all, it would have been seen by everyone on Earth, not just in Portugal. Uh, and it would have destroyed all life because the sun was seen hurtling toward the Earth and everyone would have been burned alive and so on. How stupid, right? <laughs> no one at Fatima thought that the sun was actually moving around in the sky. I mean, maybe in the moment they're confused, but the, the claim of the miracle of the sun is not that the sun was moving around in the sky. The miracle is not that the sun was moving. We know that it didn't. The miracle is how do you explain the fact that tens and tens of thousands of people all experience the same thing at the same time? That's the miracle. It's a vision, right? Uh, so that kind of elementary skepticism is just ridiculous. No sense of what a miracle means. A miracle in Greek, semea, means a sign. Mm -hmm. A sign is something to be interpreted. So miracles, even to be miracles, they don't have to defy scientific explanation. A miracle is something that can be perfectly natural. So even if we explain Fatima with a, a natural explanation, why did so many people see that? Well, even if you can explain it, which I think there are some interesting hypotheses, the point is, at that time, in that place, precisely on the day that Sister Lucia said, our lady will perform a miracle for you, and everybody sees this tremendous thing that's never been seen before. Well, regardless of what explanation you give, that's a miracle, because it's a sign. It's a sign that God has given to us of, of his presence, of our lady's message, which was to pray the rosary and to repent. Um, so yeah, that's, those, that's the important thing. It's not about defying science. That's, God has no interest in defying science. I mean, he can, but that's not that's by no means the point of a miracle. And with the Guadalupe, um, that was a sign that led so many other people, like so many people, to conversion, like to. Yeah, of course. I mean, as we see, just till this day, um, Our Lady of Guadalupe is is the great patron of the Americas, uh, but especially of the people of Mexico. And so, when so many people left the church. Uh, during the Protestant Reformation, Our Lady comes to the Americas and the Americas are converted to the Catholic faith. And basically in proportion to the people that left, people come into the faith um, because of that miracle with, with Juan Diego. Mm -hmm. um, on Mary, common kind of like Protestant question or argument is why do we worship Mary? Which is a false question, but... You know what I mean? Yeah. And here's what I think is the root of the of the problem when it comes to that kind of objection. They say, oh, you think, you know, Mary is a, is a goddess. The saints are like gods. I think that the reason why Protestants get so hung up on saints and our veneration of saints is because they don't have a proper understanding of God. Because Catholics have a very high view of saints, and especially of Mary. And so I think from a Protestant perspective, if I could put it this way, from a Protestant perspective, the saints and Mary are gods and goddesses. But the point is, from a Catholic perspective, God is so far beyond what we can think or imagine that compared to God, Mary is nothing. Compared to God, the saints are nothing. 
sure, the saints are sort of supernatural beings with miraculous powers, and Mary is, is everything that you could possibly say about a, a, a divinized creature. Yes, of course, she's all of those things. But she's nowhere near God. And I think the reason why Protestants have such a hard time understanding that is because Protestants tend to have a very low view of God. And what I mean by that is that Protestants, without the help of Thomas Aquinas and the great philosophical tradition, Protestants tend to view God as a being among other beings. Mm-hmm. As we talked about in our very first conversation, if you think that God is a being that exists in the world, well, then God is just a kind of supernatural man that lives in the sky. Well, how is that different than St. Anthony? St. Anthony is a supernatural man that lives in the sky. So you're saying that St. Anthony is like God. Well, if you think that God is just some magical being, but God is not that. God is existence itself. And no one would ever say that they think St. Anthony is existence himself. No, St. Anthony is a great patron, a helper, an intercessor. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Catholics, because they have a higher view of God. It's a higher ceiling. It's a higher ceiling. So they're allowed a higher view of the saints without at all infringing on God. So I would challenge Protestants not to lower their view of the saints, but to, in fact, raise their understanding of God. Okay. Um, We also, when we talked about heaven and hell, we didn't really talk about the sort of spiritual bodies that we will eventually, hopefully, yes. get. So the resurrection of the dead is something that unfortunately we often don't touch on. Um, the resurrection of the dead is an important part of what we call eschatology, the last things. So the end of the story is not we die, we go to heaven, the end. No, we die, we experience the vision of God. But ultimately, on the last day, we will be resurrected, meaning we will be returned to our bodies. Now, the way I frame this, though, and an important point, is that resurrection is not resuscitation. So, for instance, Lazarus came back from the dead. Mm-hmm. But Lazarus was not resurrected in this sense. Because okay. Lazarus died again. He was, he was, Lazarus was simply returned to his mortal body. And then eventually he died. And he will, he, he was returned to a mortal, a natural body. Uh-huh. But what Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15 is that on the last day, in the resurrection of the dead, we will be reunited to a body, but not to this same body, not to a mortal body that will again be subject to the same things, but what he calls a spiritual body. Now, what he means by that, he doesn't define exactly, but he says that we will that we will be like Christ, who he calls a life-giving spirit. So again, in the new body, will we need to eat in order to survive? I think not, right? We will be bodies, but not, but not confined and bound in the way that we are now but you don't like eating shane different bodies yeah yeah that's, that's true, <laughs> some yeah. people really like to eat it's not uh, like a confinement and you can eat jesus eats with his resurrected body so oh, sure okay. eating is on the table but okay. what i but my point is that it's not necessary for survival okay yeah because it's an immortal body yeah that's the point 
That's the point. So it's so don't think of resurrection as just resuscitation. It's not just like, oh, I'm back alive again, back in the old body. It's a totally new body. That's the point. Okay. So when we think of St. Anthony in heaven, or in the sky, as you said, yeah. um, he exists just... Well, yeah, St. Anthony is not resurrected. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, because we have his relics here, right? So his, yeah. his body is not resurrected. So all that's in heaven right now is St. Anthony's soul. Mm-hmm. But in the future, St. Anthony will be in heaven in body and soul. And the only people who have body and soul in heaven are... Well, I mean, the Lord Jesus, right? Okay, yes. Resurrected. Mm-hmm. Our Lady uh, assumed into heaven body and soul. Right. Okay, so Mary is not awaiting a resurrection. But presumably other saints as well. We, we don't know for sure. Okay. We know for sure Mary is taken into heaven. Uh, presumably, based on the information in, in Scripture, it would appear that Moses and Elijah are in heaven bodily. That seems to be the impression. And are those clues from their sort of their apparitions? Uh, apparitions would be one clue. The other are just kind of the story surrounding their death. So Elijah is seen being taken up into heaven. Moses, the Bible says, there's a dispute between Michael and Satan over the body of Moses. So presumably Moses is experiencing a resurrection. That's mm-hmm. the tradition. So other saints may be in heaven, body and soul. But we know, of course, for sure that Jesus and Mary are not awaiting a resurrection. Elijah and um, Moses. Moses came to Jesus before. Yes, and those are the two figures that appear to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So again, it's no coincidence, perhaps, that they are embodied. Okay. Um, and about uh, the second coming? Again, it's another one of those things where I don't think we think very much about it. We think, oh, we die, go to heaven, that's the end of the story. But again, there is an end to history. Christ comes, Christ will appear in the heavens, and he will call forth the dead, and the heavens and the earth will be recreated. All of that will be introduced by the second coming, the appearance of Christ. Now again, it's important. This is not something, Jesus is very adamant about this. This is not something that can happen in secret. This is not something, oh, I'm not sure. Did Jesus come back? Did he not? I don't know. He says, like lightning that flashes from the east and shines even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So when Jesus returns, there will be no doubt about it. So if you have any question, you're not sure Jesus has returned or not, he hasn't. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because the return of Jesus will usher in the recreation of the heavens and the earth. It will be the resurrection of the dead, both the righteous and the unrighteous. So everything will change when Christ returns. And Christ can return whenever he chooses. Uh, So this is something that we have to look forward to, not just as individuals. Because again, God is not just saving us as individuals, but God is saving the world. And at the end of the story, God will save the whole world. He will reclaim the, the universe through this second coming of Christ. Okay, that wraps up our miscellaneous episode, our question and answer episode. If you have any other questions, please feel free to send them in. We'd be happy to address them on the air. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes about prayer, including the Our Father and the Rosary. And as always, thanks for listening. Subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and family. And see you next time.
Thanks.